Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and I am going to meet someone for the very first time today that is ridiculously talented. And <laughs> I'm looking at her resume going, oh, come on. This is just too much. She does it all. And she's written a book called Why Bad Looks Good, Biblical Wisdom to Make Smart Choices in Life, Love, and Friendship. Dr. Wendy Patrick is my guest. Wendy, Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, yeah, I mean, you got a pretty impressive resume, <laughs> if I may say so. A PhD in theology, public speaker, uh, and a concert violinist, just to name a few. Yeah, you know, uh, one of the things I think I'm most proud of is my relationship with Jesus Christ and how he has enabled me to diversify, yeah, <laughs> if you I will, love that. in so many different areas. And, you know, this book really is a culmination of my just incessant praying on, can you please have me not just so scattered in so many different directions, but really figure out how to tailor what's important and come up with something that will have not only Christian but secular appeal. And the, the why bad looks good analogy, boy, isn't that something that all of your listeners and myself and you and anybody else can really relate to. Oh, no kidding. So I want to get some biblical wisdom to improve uh, my perception of people and the world around me. And I need, I need help. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> seriously, Wendy, this is even affecting me as early as 15 minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's true. There's, there's not a day that goes by that we don't make a decision that's based on emotion, that's based on chemistry, <laughs> all of the different yeah. ways in which we are just unduly influenced by the world instead of staying in the Word. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So uh, in your book, you, you really want to help people um, identify healthy sources of power and to surround uh, with trustworthy people. And I think, boy, isn't that great wisdom? Say more about that. Well, you know, like my parents used to say, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. All right. There's really a, a, some biblical wisdom and practical wisdom in, you know, you may be unduly influenced by the company you keep. Um, bad character corrupts. I mean, that's straight from the Bible. There's Old Testament. There are so many verses. And that's one of the reasons I broke this book down into 26 chapters is, you know, some people who haven't read the Bible think, well, what can it possibly tell me on such and such topic? Well, I intentionally chose 26 areas, everything from when lust looks like love, when frenemies look like friends, the loose of reputation, all the way through the rapture of riches, you know, how many lottery winners go broke, in order to address the fact that many people won't read the Bible, many Christians won't, it's too daunting to think, oh, I'm going to have to open it Genesis and close it at Revelation, I'm never going to get through it. So at the very least, these are really uh, some highlights of how Scripture addresses all of the most important issues in life, from money to marriage, health to happiness, gossip to greed, everything is bolstered by biblical wisdom, if you take the time to look. Yeah, so well said. 
Dr. Wendy Patrick is my guest. Her book is Why Bad Looks Good. I think you probably just gave some great illustrations of why bad looks good. Um, Maybe we can talk a a little bit about chapter five when you say, when you hear what you want to hear. Oh, for sure. So sometimes we are drawn to people that make us feel good. This is why, this is when bad feels good. They affirm us. They make us feel desirable and smart and insightful and special and unique. And sometimes it's authentic, which might be a match made in heaven if that's true, but it is not always authentic. When somebody is telling us things, the, the bittersweet nothings, wanting us to feel a certain way, we ought to stop and think, you know, remember that age-old question when somebody's buttering you up a little too much? You say, okay, what do you want? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's not always a bad question, mm-hmm. especially if you don't know somebody well enough. You know, I came up with this book because after all, almost 30 years in law enforcement work, prosecuting crime, working with victims, I saw the same pattern over and over. Both men and women were seduced by a silver tongue. And you, you can say anything and make it sound sensational and seductive. And if manipulators are smart enough, the flattery gets you everywhere, so to speak. And, you know, you trade in your reading, colored glass, your, your reading glasses for rose-colored glasses and all bets are off. Yeah. But wait, there's more. You've heard that before, <laughs> haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> um, so... When we talk about uh, idols, and of course, you know, I think it was Augustine that said our, our hearts are idol manufacturing facilities. We always are wanting more, don't we? Well, that's right. And, you know, that's one of the re- reasons that, you know, people that have too much money or have too much success, they're always afraid of losing what they have and they can never have enough. I mean, think about it. If all we did is compare ourselves to somebody that's above us, then where would that end? I mean, there, there's always going to be somebody more popular, prettier. And as everybody ages, it's only going to get worse. What a concept to think about anchoring your identity in the timeless creator of the universe. Boy, you talk about a self-esteem booster to realize as a child of God, that's your identity, that's your citizenship. And I love your the quote about the idol maker because it's true. Some people have idols that on, you know, maybe on the outside don't seem like it would be such a bad thing, you know, volunteer work and and giving to charity, but anything can become an idol if focus becomes fixation. It takes the place of Jesus and where the Lord should be in our lives. Thinking about it that way really puts it into perspective, doesn't it? It sure does. Um, Dr. Wendy Patrick is my guest. Now, Wendy, just I want to go through this resume one more time. You have a PhD in theology, you're a lawyer, and you're a concert violinist. I mean, just for starters. I want to know, your parents did a lot of things right. Oh, well, you know what they, I had the kind of parents that say, you know, you can do anything you want to do. But the interesting segue my life took mid-career was kind of a surprise to my mother. My dad was already in heaven, but for whatever reason, I'd been a prosecutor for about 15 years and God called me to go to seminary. And my mother, who always told me I could do whatever I wanted to do, had to ask, why? <laughs> Why would you do this? You'd go back to school and take, you know, a year of biblical Greek and a year of biblical Hebrew and write more term papers and take exams. I didn't want to do all that work, but, you know, you just don't say no when God calls you to do something. And I did. And then that led to 
going forth, forth from that and getting earning a PhD in theology and then starting down the long road of becoming formally ordained, mm-hmm. uh, which I did. Wow. Um, boy, you don't you certainly learn the word when you are studying for an ordina- ordination sitting, which was very rigorous, by the way. I would say it was harder than the bar exam. <laughs> wow. But, you know, the biblical wisdom aspect of it, God really put on my heart focus on what's most important in life. I mean, I think my symphony practice is a ministry. I think the law is a ministry. But writing this book was a ministry, too. Even the process of putting together what really matters to people, people of all stripes, all demographic backgrounds, and all faith backgrounds. And these 26 chapters were designed to have a little bit of appeal to everybody. Mm-hmm. So, Wendy, uh, let's talk a little bit about Chapter 11, When Less Looks Like More and the Infatuation mm. of Intrigue. Okay, so this goes back to my um, days growing up with James Bond movies and the, you know, the allure of secret agents and all of the, all of the glamour of the secret subculture. Mm-hmm. When you're building a relationship with somebody, less is not more. You need to know far more about somebody that you are, even if it's you're going into business with them. Why? Because if you like the other person, if they are attractive and charismatic and they're credentialed, what are you going to do with the information in the areas you don't have? You're going to fill them in favorably. That's so true. I cannot tell you how many victims I've spoken to that have said, I wanted, to, I pictured him as this. Um, I wanted to believe she was this, that, and the other. Well, of course you did because of the way they made you feel. I call this choosing the right kind of high. Uh, seductive, selective attention is to blame for attributing positive characteristics to somebody that you know very little about. And that's, you know, the infatuation of intrigue explains a lot of poor decision-making that goes on in building relationships with somebody you just don't know well enough. Like you said, but there's more. Yes, (laughs) yes, there is. Figure it out. Yeah. I'm just doing a late night infomercial for you. Wendy, that's all I was doing. Yeah. All right. Chapter 14, when lust looks like love. I know you got something to say about that. Well, that's right. And, you know, one of the reasons we see so many marriages break up and we see so many relationships break up is sometimes people don't wait to actually let love develop. Love doesn't develop overnight. Lust probably can develop in an hour or less. When, you know, when you see somebody across a crowded room, you don't fall in love at first sight. That's just not the way the Bible explains the way love develops between a couple, uh, even between friends. Remember, you lay your life down for your friends. They, you know, you, you stick close to your friends. It, it requires getting to know somebody. Why? We, we're not to be yoked to unbelievers. And how in the world do you know anything about anybody unless you take the time to let love develop? I always teach this to the young people that, you know, are rushing into relationships, sadly, and in so many different ways, getting into trouble. You know, if you wait and go slow, that allows respect, attention, trust, these things to develop. And you know what that gives you? That gives you that warm, glowing feeling about somebody else. Let me give you a very practical reason that lust should not be mistaken for love. I can tell you lots of people, myself included, that have sort of gotten to know somebody, you're getting that kind of feeling of butterflies, but there's that unsettled notion that there's something wrong. God gave us that instinct for a reason. And if you rush into a lustful infatuation scenario, what you're going to be doing is silencing or muting your innate warning signal that this person isn't right for you. Mm. Oh, so you transform 
rose-colored glasses into reading glasses? Well, that's exactly right. You know, you're, you're most objective at first meeting, at first impression, on a first date. When you start to get to know somebody, they start to make you feel good. They sound good. They look good on paper. All of the ways in which we build relationships, you're more likely as time goes on to trade in your reading glasses for rose-colored glasses. What does that mean? It means you're going to mute the red flags you see. Mm -hmm. You are going to turn what should sound like alarm bells into the faint tinkling of wind chimes (laughs) because you don't want to see these red flags. I can tell you a lot of times, you know, when in retrospect, people will say, it's not that I didn't see the red flags. I saw them on the first date. I didn't want to see the red flags. So I did what I needed to do to minimize, to rationalize, to self-blame all the different ways in which victims and, and, you know, people in bad relationships justify staying with somebody they know they shouldn't. I'd say the same thing in the professional world. Many people work someplace that they know they shouldn't be. It's not a good fit. They don't get along with the boss. Maybe the money's not even that good, but they have to make a choice. Do I just get along with what I'm seeing and the, the standards that are below me? Or do I decide, you know what, I'm putting those reading glasses back on and I'm moving on. Mm-hmm. All right, Wendy, let me take a little break. Dr. Wendy Patrick is my guest. Her book is Why Bad Looks Good, Biblical Wisdom to Make Smart Choices in Life, Love, and Friendship. And I've got this book in my hand, and I have to tell you, it is fun to hold. It is a gorgeous book. It is really pretty. Uh, You can go check it out at Amazon.com right now. We're going to take a break, but before we go to break, if you have not uh, gotten your Faith Radio app, oh, do it now. I mean, you got 90 seconds during the break, so just go and get your app. Text the word app to 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. We'll send you a link. You click the link, you have the app. It's a sweet deal. We'll be right back. If you'd like to know more about what it means to begin a relationship with Christ or to chat with someone about it, just text the word FAITH to 41224. I know that everyone listening wants to be able to overcome deception with biblical perception. We want to take the wisdom of God's word and apply it so we don't misjudge situations. If you've been betrayed by a friend or a coworker or even a love interest, maybe you went into it with rose-colored glasses and you filled in the blanks because you you were getting uh, to know someone in in love or business and you wanted the best and believed the best, and you started filling in all kinds of blanks versus taking your time. And that's why uh, Wendy wrote this book called Why Bad Looks Good, because bad can look good a lot of the time. Uh, Wendy, if you would, talk about the illusion of intelligence. Well, you know, most of us know very smart people, and we tend to, again, attribute it other positive qualities. If somebody's smart, you rely on them. You, you want to overlook other negative characteristics because you benefit from, let's say, a friendship, a mentorship, somebody who's a role model that's very, very smart. 
However, there is nothing about intelligence that equates to biblical wisdom. Wisdom and intelligence are two very different things. I mean, artificial intelligence is not real, yet we somehow think that when humans have that kind of intelligence, that they must have a lot of other public, you know, qualities that are popular, that are very um, public facing, they are, you know, coveted, when none of that equals somebody you should be getting involved in. In fact, I would hate, I hate to say this, but smart people are often the worst manipulators because they're smart enough to strategize how to fool you. Mm-hmm. Really interesting. Uh, I love a comment you made and I've already lost it, but uh, true wisdom doesn't come from Harvard. It comes from heaven. <laughs> right. I love that. All right. Let's talk about first impressions. Everybody wants to make a good first impression, and we only have one chance to make a good first impression. So what are we learning about first impressions, and how can we avoid why bad looks good? Well, I love that you queued it up the way that you do, because part of biblical wisdom is overcoming a first impression. Because, again, misjudging a book by its cover, sometimes somebody does make a great first impression on you. But then when you go back and you pray about it and you look at scripture and maybe you look online and see if everything they said was true or not, you fact check them, uh, you know, trust then verify, as we say in criminal law, you realize your first impression was fallacious. So when we are the ones striving to make a first impression, we've got to be on our best behavior because we are ambassadors for Christ. So this is kind of a two-way street. Uh, there, there, we gain nothing by not using biblical wisdom ourselves when we are presenting ourselves to others, but it's also true that we can overcome bad first impressions that we make with the help of the Lord, and we can, uh, let's say, rejudge, if we've misjudged, the first impression we've formed of somebody else. Once we really step back and said, but wait, there's more. Let's look at the fruit of this person's life and not just what they have to say. Mm-hmm. Because first impressions, if you're good at making them, uh, they, they can be very deceptive. They can be very deceptive. It's also very easy to be deceptive at first impression. You know, I always give the example of, you know, I've, many of my the sex offenders I've prosecuted over the years, sexually violent predators, rapists, bank robbers, all these different nasty kinds of people that have committed these horrible crimes. Well, wow, when you see them in the courtroom, you would think you can't distinguish them from their lawyer. They're both sitting there in three-piece suits. They have matching briefcases. In other words, the fallacy of first impression doesn't allow you to make a distinction because anyone can dress the part. And that is one of the main reasons you have to catch yourself. I know it's tough. I do it myself. Uh, you know, it's like that scene in Pretty Woman that we talk about in the realm of, you know, the human trafficking, sex crimes world about how you you misjudge by first impressions where she goes into the dress store and nobody will wait on her because of what she's wearing. She comes back the next day dressed like a million bucks and they're falling all over themselves to show her the clothing. We treat others based on what we see. Uh, seat fillers at the Oscars. You know, you get men and women that will go for free to look like celebrities and sit there for the cameras. Nobody can tell the difference. Right. This is one of the reasons we have to do more than just look. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the seat fillers, attractive people that sit there and, and look like they're uh, important. It's a great way to get to see the show for free. Yeah, it, it really is. Um, okay, now I want to go back to first impressions. Um, because when you, uh, tell me something about yourself, Wendy, all I know is what you share with me. And I have no idea if it's true. (laughs) Yes, you do. Because I'm all over the internet. (laughs) Well, no, but, but I'm saying 
I meet you in a coffee shop and you're and we're in line and you're telling me something and I don't know that it's not true. Exactly. Because all I know is what you tell me. Either. You're not going to fact check me either. I can't. Because, well, it, here's, a, here's another really sort of interesting, almost counterintuitive reason that you wouldn't, whether or not you could. It's cognitively more difficult to doubt. So it's easier. It's easier on us. I mean, who wants to, like, be thinking in the line waiting for your coffee? Oh, I'm going to go home and I'm going to fact check on the Internet everything this person says. Right. We don't do that. When we meet at cocktail parties, church picnics, all the different places we meet people, we don't go back and, and fact check everything they say and, and, you know, corroborate that. We would do nothing else. So the fantasy of first impressions is where that fallacy comes from. You know, we listen, we look, we, you know, sort of engage a little bit. We see what kind of a tip they give when the barista hands them their coffee. You know, some of the most famous manipulators have been great tippers because it's Mm -hmm. that illusion of public perception. But remember what we learned in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we live by faith, not by sight. You know, that's why the wrong person was almost chosen for to lead Israel. I mean, you know, you just, you look at, you know, well, he looks like a king. David didn't look like a king. We all make that mistake. And as you point out, when you meet somebody in a social setting, maybe you don't even know their name, maybe just their first name. I know most people don't even give their first names when they order coffee at Starbucks because they value their privacy. Mm-hmm. You know, you have very little to go on, except you learn a little bit about their personality in a natural setting. And I think that's worth something. Mm -hmm. In chapter 25, you talk about when busyness looks like business and when activity is unproductive. Say more about that. Oh, so you can be absolutely productive in a very short period of time. And you can be unproductive all day long, pushing papers around your desk or at the office with the door closed watching pornography, which is a big problem, as mm-hmm. our listeners probably know in this day and age. Uh, and everybody understands the value of hard work, but I'm always driven to the Proverbs 31, the perfect wife, right? The gets up early in the morning, you know, sews and you know, clothes her family, uh, considers a field and buys it. Productivity is is valued far more than simply being busy. You know, you can be busy all day long doing good things. You can be volunteering at the church, and you can be in children's ministry, and this, that, and the other, and never find time to read the Bible. Mm-hmm. You know what I always say is taking the time to read the Bible in the morning will save you time during the course of your day, because after I pray in the morning, I say, Lord, please focus me and allow me supernaturally to accomplish more in a shorter block of time because I'm overwhelmed. I'm busy. I have all these deadlines coming up and amazing if he won't do just that because you sacrificed time that maybe other people would say, well, I don't have that kind of time. You gave it to him and he'll give it back to you tenfold Mm -hmm. with interest. Yeah. Wendy, my last question, do you sleep more than two hours a night? (laughs) You know, I try to sleep about six or seven (laughs) um, because as you know, you can't have a silver tongue if you haven't had enough sleep. And I I literally talk for a living. So that's a great question to end on. Thank you for your your book and your time today. It's been a delight. Uh, Likewise. Have a nice weekend. You as well. Thank you so much. Dr. Wendy Patrick has been my guest. Her book is called Why Bad Looks Good, Biblical Wisdom to Make You Smart to make smart choices in life, love, and friendship. Be right back with Dr. Greg Headington as we uh, talk about um, Daniel chapter 3.
Hi, this is Bill. I thought this interview was so good, I wanted you to hear it again. So enjoy. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Welcome to the show. If you just joined us, I'm so glad you're here. And we're going to continue on a brand new study. This is uh, lesson three with Dr. Greg Heddington. We're going through the book of Daniel. When he suggested that, I got quite excited, and I'm looking forward to the next teaching lesson. Greg, welcome back. Thanks, Bill. Let's do it. So welcome to the third lesson in our study of Daniel. Today we look at the first 23 verses of chapter 2. Daniel is one of the most interesting and dynamic characters in all of Scripture, and he is Christ-like in many ways. However, if we focus only on the person of Daniel, then we're missing the greater emphasis in the book. The message of Daniel is not to be like Daniel or go on a Daniel diet, which, by the way, there is a Daniel diet, (laughs) or to go worship only so life will go better for us. If we do that, then this becomes a morality book. In other words, just do good things instead of a record of God's grace. This book is a reminder that God will do everything necessary to fulfill the promise he made a long time ago that through Abraham and his lineage, one day there will arrive one who provides a path for all who choose to enter the kingdom of God. That's his plan, and no one makes it there through hard work. Rather, we make it by receiving, by, by saying yes to his grace. As John Newton once said, Jesus is a far greater Savior than we are sinners. That's it in quotation. Although kings and kingdoms rise and fall, let's remember that the one true king endures forever, and his purpose will be accomplished, and I think we can all say amen to that. Well, I've been thinking about how we can make the study of Daniel really come alive and be relevant to us in the 21st century. And we look at events that occurred about 2,600 years ago, after all. So this lesson today will be mostly about application to our lives. In order to do that, I want us to consider the conditions in Babylonia in which the exiled Jews lived for 70 years. I want to do this because as Americans, we only know what it's like to live in freedom, and there's no way we can truly get our minds around what it was like living in Babylonia, but we'll try. Every time we open Scripture to Daniel, I want us to have a small sense of that emotional effect of the imprisonment that thousands of Jews had when they are in Babylon, when they are exiled, who lived under that totalitarian structure, and especially how four faithful teenage boys who sought the will of God daily resulted in impacting a nation. So let's look at the spiritual and emotional effect on the Jews. Roman number one, the lament. We know historically that about 20,000 Jews were taken from their homeland in Israel and marched 500 miles east across the Arabian Desert to Babylonia. This large deportation of Jews occurred over three different trips beginning in 605 B.C., and all of them end up in the Babylonian Empire, a pagan nation which worshipped a whole pantheon of pagan gods, of which the capital city of the empire was Babylon. I so easily mentioned this information, but in fact, this is the greatest national tragedy that had happened to Judah since the 430 years they had been slaved in Egypt. And that was six centuries before this exile occurred. Many Jews in Babylon wrote heartbreaking laments of their longing for their homeland during those 70 years of captivity in Babylon. 
and you can imagine the tears that would fall from their eyes onto the papyrus pages. But of all the many laments in the Psalms, one particular lament, uh, lament especially stands out and gives a, a visceral feeling of what the thousands of Jews must have felt like on a daily basis that will help remind us each week of their condition as we read the book of Daniel. Now, this passage comes from the Psalms, and the easiest way to find Psalms in Scripture you may have learned is just go to the middle of your Bible, open it up, and it usually opens up to Psalms. Now, here's a little pop quiz about Psalms. How many Psalms are there in the book of Psalms? Well, if you answered 150, you are correct. Oh, good. I feel better about myself. Well done. <laughs> so, so here's something else. The Psalms were originally what? They were songs sung by the Hebrews, although over the years we've lost the sheet music, so we no longer know the melodies. But they were songs written by various musicians over several centuries and compiled in the Old Testament. Now, singing, in fact, is a good way to remember Scripture, or for that matter, anything else, if you have a melody in your mind. I mean, I've heard people recite the 50 states of America in alphabetical order when they use that device of singing. I think about the alphabet. I mean, every time, and I still use a dictionary, I'm old school, every time I go through the dictionary in my mind to go A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, you know, something I learned when I was very small, but it's also the easiest way to memorize Scripture that I found. And memorizing is a very important part of Jewish heritage. Now, some people assume that King David wrote all the Psalms. In fact, scholars believe David possibly wrote only 73 of the 150 Psalms that we have, which certainly does not diminish the value of any of them. That question, by the way, will not be on the test. Good. No, there is no test, so be of good cheer. But what's my point? My point is the Psalms we look at, and especially the Psalm today, which was written by one of those Jewish captives in Babylon, although we don't know his name, this psalm expresses the grief and the sorrow of the Jewish prisoners like no other scripture. And remember, if we're in the dates, this was written around 580 B.C. So here it is, the first part of Psalm 137. And if you're familiar with the musical Godspell, you may remember how beautifully it was sung. Here's, here's how it goes. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. And remember, Zion is just another name for uh, Jerusalem. On the willows there, we hung up our harps because our captives asked for our songs. Our Babylonian tormentors demanded songs of joy from us and said, Sing to us one of the songs of Zion. But how can we sing the songs of our Lord while we are in this foreign land? End of quotation. Now, that's a painful question for these exiled Jews to answer who are 500 miles from home. But it's also a good question for us, just as the Apostle Paul refers to us, who are followers of Jesus, who live in this fallen world. Paul calls us spiritual aliens. That's from 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Paul says that it's not odd that we should feel like strangers on this earth because this is not our true home. We're citizens of heaven, according to Philippians 3, verse 20. 
Believers hold that passport to heaven only because of one thing, and that's the cross of Jesus. Now, after hearing this lament from Psalm 137, we read in Scripture many other laments from other great people of faith who are also in desperate straits, all the way from the difficulties of Joseph to Moses to Daniel to the Apostle Paul, and they all could have fallen into despair, and they did lament. Now, laments are woven throughout the Psalms, but in spite of crushing circumstances, they choose to remember and trust in the promises that Yahweh has for them in his covenant with Abraham, that if the Israelites walk in his ways, they will be blessed. And let's remember in the Old Testament, these blessings were always conditional upon the Israelites following the laws of God, which they often did not do so well with. And these laments in Scripture typically conclude, like the one in Psalm 42, which ends like this. Yet I hope in God, and I shall praise him, for he is my salvation and my God. Now, I hope that gives us just a small sense of the sorrow and longing that the exiled Jews in Babylon felt for their homeland in Israel, whenever you read it. And Bill, that brings us to point number two. That's awesome. Our teaching today is from Dr. Greg Heddington. We're continuing, if you just joined us, in the book of Daniel. We're in chapter two. And spectacular start, Greg. Thanks. Okay, well, Roman numeral two, if you're taking notes, the government system of Babylonia. The exiled Jews are taken prisoner and put into a totalitarian state in Babylonia. Now, I admit that I often open up Scripture and I immediately start looking for, I don't know about you, but I start looking for God's truth that applies to my favorite person, me, and I usually do not even think of the context. Having said that, there is virtually no way that any of us Americans who have always lived in freedom can grasp what it would be like to live in a totalitarian totalitarian state like Babylonia. Now, I've looked up several sources regarding the differences between totalitarianism and communism, and even though the academicians claim there's a difference, I just cannot appreciate the nuance. And I know it's not possible to know the answer to this question over the radio, but I wonder of our audience two things. First, have you ever taken a mission trip before to another country? And second, have you ever taken any kind of trip to a communist country? Well, thanks to the kindness of our Lord, I've been able to take uh, one-week trips to Cuba twice a year, except during COVID, for the past 25 years. And I'm going again in, in November with my wife, Carrie, and a bilingual friend. And when we go, we teach and counsel and listen to the plight of our brothers and sisters in Christ in several Cuban cities who are living sacrificial and courageous lives for the Lord to get some sense, uh, this is why I'm saying it, so in order to get some sense of the Babylonian rule, it helps to compare it with an ideological system which would be somewhat similar to that of the communist system in Cuba. This will help us remind that whenever we read about the daily lives of these Jews, it is not similar to daily life in whatever city you live in. But it's more like in ancient Babylon, or a lot more similar to the communist system today, in which the state controls everything politically, economically, whether or not one can go anywhere for all personal matters. In this system of communism, there is equal opportunity for 95% of the population, and in a word, that equal opportunity means misery and poverty. 
Just as King Nebuchadnezzar gives special privilege to four brilliant teenagers, the communist system also gives special privileges to a handful of brilliant and gifted musicians, athletes, and top-ranking communist officials. But 95% of the jobs in Cuba offered by the government pay, I know this is hard to believe, an average salary of $25, not a day, not a week, but a month. Hmm. So the poverty is shared, and one must receive permission to do everything from using the Internet to building their own center block with their own hands. But even after going there for all these years, I still cannot get my mind around what it would be like to live in a communist country. But that was the unsettling plight of the exiled Jews for 70 years in Babylonia. Even in this Babylonian environment, in which there is so much to lament and to feel despair about, four young Jewish boys make a decision on how they will live. And, Bill, that brings us to number three, and I think it's probably a good time for a break. Uh, You're probably right, Greg. We're going to take a little break as we continue our study in the Book of Daniel with Dr. Greg Heddington. We'll be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Hi, this is Bill. I thought this interview was so good, I wanted you to hear it again. So enjoy. Oh, it's a good thing we weren't gone long, because I can't wait to get back to our study of Daniel with Dr. Greg Heddington. Greg, let's get back to it. Well, Bill, we're looking at the second chapter of the book of Daniel, and I'm attempting to perhaps give us somewhat of the feeling that many Jews may have felt in the 6th century B.C. when they were marched 500 miles from their home in Israel to spend the next 70 years in pagan Babylonian Empire, which is across the Arabian Desert. So we'll pick up now in Roman numeral 3, which is Making Choices. We believe in the sovereignty of God, according to Scripture. In fact, what is the theme of our study in Daniel? God is in control of everything. God has one plan, plan A. We do not always understand why some things happen in plan A. But in spite of many mysteries, nothing is going to happen to you that has not first been cleared by our loving, gracious, sovereign God for our happiness, even though it is only in retrospect that we often see how that plan worked for good. Now, that's a great line, but I want to say it one more time. Nothing is going to happen to you that has not first been cleared by our loving, gracious, sovereign God for our happiness, even though it is only in retrospect that we often see how that plan worked for good. So, knowing that God is in control, what is our responsibility? Are we just to let life happen? No, because life is about the choices we make. And we'll talk more about the will of God later, but as followers of Christ, we make good decisions through prayer and study of Scripture. Martin Luther, the founder of Protestantism, once said, I have so many things that I will do tomorrow that I must wake up one hour earlier to pray. So one thing we do know is that life is not based on fate or luck. In fact, I suggest never say the words, good luck. Although the people who say it are unaware of the theology, the idea of fate or luck goes back to the pagan religion of the Greco-Roman mystery cults hundreds of years before Jesus made his historic trip to earth. 
Before Jesus arrived, many people believed their destiny was determined by the stars or, kind of grotesque, but by looking at the entrails of a bird. Hmm. Today, there are some people who will not make a move until they consult their horoscope. I've got a true story. One of my friends was on a jury duty, and as the 12 jurors were about to come to a verdict, one man said, my horoscope told me I am not to make any decisions today. Well, that certainly slowed down the process of coming to a verdict, to say the least. The point is we are not to live as though we are passive victims outside of God's will. Yes, God is in control, but we make decisions, good or bad, and there are consequences. As T.S. Eliot wrote, quote, For us, there is only the trying. The rest is not our business. In other words, we do our best, pray that it's blessed, and Jesus takes care of the rest. After all, if we choose to sow wild oats at night, don't pray for a crop failure in the morning. God does not operate impersonally like Superman who swoops down to save people from their bad decisions and then flies away. Our Lord intends for us to learn from our decisions so that hopefully we become wiser. In Superman movies, no one gets saved seems to learn much from what happens since Superman saved them. And of course, no one has a relationship with the Man of Steel except yeah, maybe Lois Lane, but that's a little complicated. <laughs> However, our consequences do not determine our attitude. Let me repeat that. Our consequences do not determine our attitude. As a great man once said who had experienced enough tragedy and heartache to destroy most people, he said this, people are about as happy as they choose to be. That man was Abraham Lincoln, and he had a lot of tragedy in his life. So here's the big question. What is the general will of God? Now, there have been hundreds of seminars over the years on this subject, what is the will of God? Well, I'm going to give it to you. This, this, it's a scriptural answer that, with no further ado, here it is. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God. Now, that's 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 to 18. That's the general will of God for all of us, and we would have a happier and more peaceful lives if we live those words. Our Lord also gives individuals his specific will for them. So, Roman numeral 4, how do I know God's specific will for my life? Well, here's what God says in Psalm 32, verse 8. I will instruct you in the way you should go, and I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Now, Daniel was a man of prayer. In this book, we see how Daniel receives clear answers from God in prayer throughout his 70 years of Babylon. Billy Graham once said that if he could live his life over, he would have prayed more. Imagine that. Billy Graham said that. Regarding prayer, here are some suggestions on how we can discover the will of God specifically for us. Roman numeral 4a, listen to him. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know I am God, and I will be exalted among the nations. So here's a question. In prayer, do we do all the talking, or do we listen to Him? And if we do not listen to Him, to whom are we listening? Are we listening to other people? Again, we, we don't go to the phone. We go to the throne. We want to hear from the Lord. And it makes sense to listen to the one that created us and knows everything about our thoughts, even. Roman numeral 4b. How do I identify the voice of God? 
Because God is omniscient, that is, he knows everything, he knows exactly what we need and when we need it. And that's true, even if initially it may not make sense. Roman numeral 4C, his voice will always be consistent with Scripture. In other words, God will never ask us to do anything that violates his word. So the answer to that is we need to know his word. Roman numeral 4D, I know I'm going through these quickly, so I guess if you're writing, it'll have to write pretty quickly. Roman numeral 4D, sometimes his voice will be in conflict with what seems reasonable. Sometimes his voice will be in conflict with what seems reasonable. He may ask us to do something which may not make sense at the time, or we may decide that we don't want to change at all. However, one of the best things about his word to us is he knows all things already, past, present, and future. He knows not only what is best for us, but he knows the gifts and skills he has given us, even if we're not always aware of them. It may come as a surprise to some people, but God is not a harsh taskmaster who's just waiting to thump us on the head if we make a mistake. I mean, I guess if you're going to talk to some of your friends who don't believe in God, you've got to say, God is not a tough, a tough taskmaker. God loves you, number one. You just have to remember that. God desires our very best in every area of our life, and he just asks us to trust him. Now, his voice may clash with what we're used to doing and what we hear from others, and we might say, I know God is calling me to do something, or we might say, I know God's calling me to quit doing something, or I don't want to change my routine. But like Daniel, if it's God's will and we step up in faith, he will accomplish it through us in his power. I love Thessalonians 5.24, which says, The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Now, wait a minute. Does that mean we just sit back and we're passive? No. In other words, he will do it through us. We are his hands and feet, and God will not call us to accomplish something without first equipping us to do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. Roman numeral 4E his voice is often quiet. <laughs> I know people say, I've never heard the voice of God. He's just not loud enough. Well, often he does not shout, but speaks in a still, small voice. But we're more likely to hear his voice the more we pray and the more time we spend in Scripture. If we do not pray much or study much Scripture, there's a good chance we will not hear much of what God is trying to tell us. In fact, that's a pretty good formula. If we pray much and study much, we will likely hear much from the Lord. And when we make good decisions in life, they will not just affect us. They can impact a whole community and beyond. Speaking of making an impact, I'm thinking of that classic movie, It's a Wonderful Life, which I watch every year, when George Bailey, who gives up his dreams in order to help others, and whose imminent suicide brings the intervention of that angel. Do you remember the name of that angel? Clarence Oddbody. 
who shows George all the lives he touched and how different life in this community of Bedford Falls would be if he'd never been born. It's a deeply moving film, and the theme encourages us to remember the effect we have on others. Statistics show us that if we meet three new people every day of our life, no matter the depth of the meeting, by the time we reach 78 years of age, we will have met 85,410 new people in our life. That is potentially a lot of influence that one person could have on many others. A great man once said, what goes deepest to the soul goes widest to the world. It's a good one-liner. In other words, a transformed life for the Lord can have a profound impact for the kingdom of God to people everywhere, and we will see that impact from Daniel and his three buddies. Too often think we that how we live only affects us. Well, Scripture shows us that through the Holy Spirit we can change the, change the lives of others through Jesus if we just choose, and that's the word that's important, if we just choose. So in conclusion, we have heard some thoughts on how you can discover God's will specifically for you. Now let's remember Paul's words. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you. And Bill, I think that's enough for today. Uh, Greg, you know, first of all, I love the teaching, as always. And then you gave a very interesting statistic uh, about the kinds of, the numbers of of people you could potentially reach in your lifetime. Mm. Yes. And that's uh, a fascinating number. It was amazing. Yeah. Thank you. It is, Bill. And I'll tell you, you know, as Dave Barry puts it, some people want to change the world, but no one wants to help mom take out the trash. (laughs) Well said. Have a great rest of the day, Greg. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Bill. You bet. Dr. Greg Heddington has been my guest as we continue our study in the book of Daniel. Take a short break and be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.